Okay, we are just blasting through the Westminster Confession. We have come to chapter... What's so funny, Nate? The, uh, we're just blasting through the Confession. We're all the way in chapter 9. So we did chapter 8 with its great statements on Christ the Mediator. Now we're, at, we're transitioning to salvation now. We're going to get some doctrinal headings under salvation, and we start with man's free will. The first chapter, paragraph says this, God hath endued the will of man with that natural ability that is neither forced nor by absolute necessity of nature determined to good or evil. Now, of course, by this time, they've already taught total depravity, which says that man in sin does not have spiritual ability. We'll come back over that. They've already taught predestination. They've already taught uh, providence. And, of course, uh, the popular culture always refers to Calvinism as dark determinism. Calvinism has never been determinism. And the, and the, the divines were very careful in their context. Now, it's interesting to note that they're writing in the, seven, in the 1640s. So a lot of the philosophical events of the Enlightenment that we take kind of for granted for our, our cultural context hadn't happened then. And so, but even then, they want to be careful that we actually do not teach determinism, and we'll work that out. Uh, this first statement that tells us that God has given man with a natural ability, and it, it involves actual volition. Well, uh, now when they say free will, you go, Rick, I thought you didn't like to use free will. That's because I'm on the other side of the Enlightenment. Uh, Post enlightenment, you have an idea of autonomy, and uh, man does not. Man was man was always a contingent being. Man was always created in relationship to his creator, and so the kind of free will concepts post enlightenment are not what they're talking about. But uh, what, what they're teaching is that man is a responsible moral agent because he makes choices. God has made man as a volitional being, one who exercises his will. Uh, and uh, what, the, what this chapter is going to do is it's going to, we'll see this in a minute, it's going to work through the state of the free will or the will in the various conditions of history. Now, it speaks of natural liberty. What does that mean? It means that we have the freedom to make decisions. You, and people say, oh, you're, you're a Calvinist, you believe we're puppets. You, you may think that's a natural consequence of what we teach, but in fact, we do not teach that. And no one believes they're a puppet. We, we know from our own experiences that we make choices. And those choices are, are real choices and that things happen because we willed, we chose, we acted a certain way. And of course, the Bible, I, I've had many times I've had Arminians say to me, Arminians emphasize maybe free will may be the the enlightenment free will may be the chief tenet of Arminianism. And I've had them say, you have your verses, we have ours. And I go, well, what are your verses? And they go to Deuteronomy 30, 19, which says, you know, teach your children to, to, to choose the Lord. Or J- Joshua 15, 24, choose this day who you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will choose the Lord. And I always go, actually, those are our verses too. I, if we have a scheme of theology that has some verses but not others, well, then we need to embrace the others and change our theology. And, and Charles Hodge's systematic theology, he actually, I, one thing I enjoy about that systematic theology is he'll, he'll consider the different views. He'll consider the Roman Catholic view. He'll consider maybe the Eastern Orthodox view, often the Arminian view. And he'll often say, this position 
makes good sense of a portion of Holy Scripture, but unfortunately does not make good sense of the entirety of Holy Scripture. Well, we freely embrace the... uh, There are no verses in the Bible that are yours and not mine if you're in a different theological viewpoint. And the Bible plainly teaches that man makes choices. He is endowed with an ability, a natural function of the will, and he exercises it. Um, So we do choose. Now, it says it's not forced or determined by any absolute necessity of nature. Uh, it's not that we. It's not that our choices are totally free. Our choices are not totally free. But when someone chooses something, maybe they choose to reject the gospel, for instance. They're doing so, exercising a faculty that God has given them, and they're using it against them. God has given people the faculty of choosing. We have a natural liberty, and it is not, in fact, force. There's no. External constraint. Jonathan Edwards' book, The Freedom of the Will, uh, makes this point very much. He talks about a lion. And uh, he has a conversation with a lion. Why don't you eat grass? And the lion says, I do not. I never eat grass. And Edward goes, well, well, what's constraining you from doing so? You can reach it. You, You actually have the physical ability to chew it and digest it. Uh, so you're, there's no constraint. But the reason the lion won't eat grass is that it, is, is that it hates grass, that it loves meat. And so we certainly make choices as they are influenced, even controlled by our nature. But there is upon, and this is true in all the states of man. It's going to talk about man before, man created, man fallen, man regenerated, man in glory. In all those states, we are we are creatures who possess an unforced will. There's, no, there's nothing forcing us to will something. There is, and, and, and even when you know, God says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show my power in you. Paul quotes that in Romans 9 for predestination. God predestined Pharaoh to be hard-hearted and to reject Moses. And yet, there was no necessity placed upon his nature to do so. He was was. There was no external compulsion or restraint. Well, man is therefore fully responsible for his choices and actions because he freely willed them. Now, we do admit that there are powerful influences acting upon us. Uh, We're the products of our environment. Now, we're living in an age that I think, from a biblical perspective, puts way too much influence. We've got Way too much Freud in our minds. Freud's a smart guy. He makes some interesting things, but not everything goes back to your childhood. You know, you know, if it was bad, it was the father's bad example. If they were good, it's always the mother. You know, but and, and but those are powerful things. Of course, we acknowledge that that the moral environment in which you were raised, the way you were treated, makes a difference on you. Of course, that's going to influence you. We're of course influenced by temptation. Uh, and it's a real thing, or by oppression. and But most importantly is the sinful corruption of our nature. We are beings in our fallen state who have a sinful nature, and yet the will functions naturally. The will is making choices. Jonathan Edwards made the comment that I may do as I please. The problem is I cannot please as I please. Well, that's not, a, that's not about the will 
That's about the affections. We are moral agents who exercise genuine will. Now, here's the fourfold state of man. I think this, well, it comes out of the Bible, of course, but St. Augustine's the one who's famous for breaking this out. And it says there are four fundamental states in which any person is. There is the state of creation, man created. It's Adam and Eve prior to the fall. And then you have man fallen in sin, uh, the whole human race, after the fall. And most people you know today are in the fallen condition. But there's a third category. Those who've been converted are born again. They are regenerated. They call it the state of grace, the divines do. Uh, and then, but there's a, thank the, thank the Lord, there's a fourth state that's going to be man in glory. So the full fourfold states of man are man in creation, man fallen, Man under grace, regenerated, and man in glory. Now, here's how Augustine broke it out. Man created was passe pacare, Latin, able to sin. And we'll talk about that. But clearly, he was, he was not a sinner, but he was able to sin. But once man has fallen into sin, the natural man suddenly is non passe, non pacare, not able not to sin. The regenerate person, by the way, this is, a, this is a truth that needs to be recovered in the church of our time, that the new birth makes a difference, that the regeneration is a big, big deal, and it changes our, our state. We go from being non passe non picare, not able not to sin, to passe non picare. We are able not to sin. And then in glory, we will be not able to sin, non passe Picare. Those are the fourfold states of man. This had a big influence on Reformed theology as a whole. Thomas Boston, one of the best Scottish divines, wrote a book called The Fourfold State of Man that I would really recommend. It's a little big. It's a really good book. But we have it here in the Confession. Well, let's look at these states. Oops, I hit the wrong button. In the state of innocence, this is paragraph two. Man in his state of innocency had freedom and power and to, to do that which was good and well-pleasing to God. So prior to the fall, we had freedom and also the power. God made man upright. God made man righteous. And he had the ability to keep the law. And, to, and yet mutably so that he might fall from it. And so that's the big difference between the unconverted person today and Adam and Eve, they had the liberty, but also the power. They had the, the, they had the ability. They were able to obey. When God brings the covenant of works, the tree of the knowledge of God, good and evil, of that tree you will not eat, they are able to keep it. Now, that is not true, as anyone raising children now knows. You, you give your children a law and you have just provoked them. I'm not saying you shouldn't do it. You have just provoked them into breaking it by the very giving of the law, as Paul explains in Romans 7. Not so with Adam. Now, one of the things this means is that sin can never be traced back to, to our created state. Adam was made upright. One of the ways this is playing out in the PCA today has to do with the revoice conference controversy, the same-sex attraction controversy, because the claim is being made that homosexuality is rooted in creation, not the fall. And therefore, it is good. Well, of course, it's completely contrary to the Scripture. 
both in terms of its general teaching and its specific teaching about that and every other sin, there is no sin that can be traced to our created state. Uh, it is always a result of our sin. What's the uh, Lady Gaga uh, uh, doctrine? Uh, God made me this way. I'm probably not getting it quite right. But God, if I'm this way, God, that, that, that language is thrown around today. Well, God made me this way. Well, no, sin, the fall made you this way. Sin made you this way. God made Adam and Eve upright without any sin. They were righteous, and they had a will that was able to keep his law. Uh, now, what's interesting, you say, well, here's a question, Pastor. How is it that Adam fell? Here you have a person who is without sin. He is upright in his nature, and he has the power to keep God's law. How does he sin? And I want to tell you, that is a mystery. Now, the Bible's emphasis is going to be by temptation and deception. But clearly, you know, Satan immediately starts playing mind games with them. Did God really say, on the day that you eat of it, you will be like God? He lies to them. He deceives them. Adam is tempted because the the apple has, I would say, the apple that he took had the dental profile of Eve on it. And, And part of his sin is he chooses the gift over the giver. Um, but, uh, but you go, how did it, how is it that someone who possesses no sinful desires falls into sin? Well, the biblical emphasis is going to be on his temptation and his deception. Uh, Robert Shaw says, in the state of innocence, the natural inclination of man's will was only to good, but it was liable to change through the power of temptation. That was Adam and Eve in the garden. Well, this is man in his fallen state. Man, by his fall into a state of sin, hath wholly lost all ability of will to any spiritual good accompanying salvation. So as a natural man, being altogether averse from that good and dead in sin, is not able by his own strength to convert himself or to prepare himself thereunto. Now, by the way, this is not saying that uh, the unregenerate person never does anything that we would call good. You know, you're, you're, you, you know, don't, don't be that cage-faced Calvinist who refuses to say, good job, Johnny, when he got an A. I know it was not meritoriously good in God's sight. I know it does not fulfill the covenant of works because there's pride and sloth and all, but still be a good parent and say, good job. You're you're not talking in terms of the the theological category in view there. Uh, But when it comes to the keeping of God's law, particularly in a meritorious way, man in sin is not able to do so. And notice the emphasis here, to convert himself or to prepare himself thereunto. In the time of the divines, there was a lot of preparationism. Uh, We've got a little bit of today, too that you have a duty to prepare for your conversion. Well, the problem is you are dead in sin. Well, let's look at this. Man's fallen state is called total depravity. And total depravity argues against a limited depravity. There's all kinds of schemes of limited depravity where the fall has wounded us but not killed us. Uh, But the Bible teaches that uh, the the fall, in fact, has rendered us, what does Paul say? You were dead in trespasses. Now you're going to hold on. How can I be dead? I'm talking to you now. Well, he's talking about your capacity, your ability to respond to God and his word, 
uh, and his law and his gospel in, in a truly positive way, you have no more ability to do that than a dead person. Specifically, Romans 8, 7 says, the man in the flesh cannot submit to God's law, is not able to do so. So the Bible teaches that the pre-regenerate sinner cannot keep God's law, cannot please God. Why? The same passage says, because his mind is hostile to God. 1 Corinthians 2.14, I like to quote this verse. The, the man without the Spirit is not able to understand the things of the Spirit of God. So here you are. Here's the bad news, Ken Safford. You're out there on Main Street. You're witnessing to people, and they're not able to believe. They're not able. Of course, the good news is there's more than the man's state and sin. There's the redeeming work of the Holy Spirit. But unless they are born again, they are not able to believe. You're, you, you mothers in the home and fathers, you're reading the word to your children. Um, apart from God's active supernatural grace in their lives, they are not in their flesh able to believe and they don't get it. You know, this is one of the places I benefit from being an adult convert. I was 30 years old when I was converted and I remember in my late 20s trying to read the Bible and just not being able to do it. And it was just so boring and it was just so bogus. And it was just like, it was just like brass. I'm staring at a metal surface and it's bouncing back. As soon as I get converted, I'm reading it voraciously and it's life to me. But that's man in his unconverted state. He is not able to understand the things of the spirit. Jesus says in John 6, 44, no one is able to come to me unless my father who sent me draws him. And that word draws is a very strong word. It means virtually compelled, drag in. Well, that's a pretty bad condition. That's why we call it total depravity. The key point of total depravity is the absolute spiritual inability of the man or woman or child in their fallen condition to respond savingly to God. Now, in the 4th century, early 5th century, there's a man named Pelagius who became famous. St. Augustine was his big enemy. And he was appalled by this. Augustine, in his confessions, wrote two famous prayers that were immediately popular in Rome around 400 AD. The one was the one that we quote all the time. Thou hast made us for thyself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. But the, but the more famous one at the time was a prayer, also in chapter 1, which says, Sovereign Lord, command whatever thou wilt, but grant what thou commands." And what he meant was, we have no ability as sinners to respond to you unless you give that responsibility. Well, Pelagius is this legalistic British monk, and he's in Rome for the for the you know for a, a conference or something. I, he may be there for longer, but he was visiting Rome, and he reads the confessions, and he's mortified. And he argues, no, the only effect of the fall was a bad example. It didn't affect our natures. So we, the, the sinful man has complete ability to turn from God. He or she just needs to be motivated enough to do it. Uh, now, the early church condemned Pelagianism. The Council of Ephesus, I think, in 431 labeled that the heresy that it is. And I dare say, when you read, as I'm sure you do, Augustine's anti-Pelagian letters, you're going to go, it sounds like John Calvin. Uh, my son, Matthew, uh, he said, what, the anti-Pelagian letters? Uh, it's true. I gave him a copy of Augustine's anti-Pelagian letters when he went to law school. He needed something to do in his spare time. He goes, it's like he's under Calvin's influence, except for it's quite the other way around. Calvin's a millennium later. 
Uh, but then what's more familiar to us today is Arminianism, Jacobus Arminius, who Arminianism is the Enlightenment being mad about Calvinism. All the arguments of Arminianism, they don't come from Scripture, they come from the Enlightenment. Particularly, what about free will? That's like the first thing. Thank you, Mr. Enlo. Thank you, John Locke, for objecting to the Bible. Um, and this is called semi-Pelagianism. By the way, Roman Catholicism is also semi-Pelagian. The schemes are a little, but that's why Arminianism is an up-ramp to Roman Catholicism. The schemes vary, but the idea is that man is hindered by sin from willing the spiritual good, from believing, giving his or her heart to the Lord, honoring the Lord in faith and obeying. And what that person needs is grace to assist them. Now in Rome, it's going to be sacramental grace. So the mass baptism, but then especially the mass, provides kind of the, the juice that you need to lift you up so that you can achieve your potential, which is being hindered by sin. Arminianism schemes it a little different, but they call it prevenient grace. God provides that assisting grace. Conser- your conversion is with grace, but it's by God's free will. In fact, during the uh, and in the 1990s, there was the Evangelicals and Catholics Together controversy. Some Reformed scholars were trying to work with Roman Catholicism to work it out. And I was, uh, I was at the meeting in Orlando when the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals was responding to the ECT promoters, Chuck Colson, Timothy George. And I was uh, Dr. Boyce's aide-de-camp, really. And I'm, I actually, I set up the, the conference call, but I was sitting next to R.C. Sproul during it who was at that conference call like a man doused in gasoline waiting for a match to be lit. And I'm just going, this is the greatest thing. I'm still in seminary. I'm sitting next to R.C. Sproul in this conversation. And sure enough, one of the other guys comes along and goes, R.C. We're on a co-. And we're, we're literally, we're standing, this in the old days, pre-Zoom. There's a, there's a phone thing in the center of the table and we're all standing around it. And uh, Dr. Boyce was sitting, of course, but uh, R.C. was standing. And they go, oh, R.C., we've made such a breakthrough. We got the Roman Catholics to agree that salvation is by grace. And R.C. responds with this well-measured response, you idiots. (laughs) Rome has always taught that it's by grace. (laughs) But they mean something completely different than we do. I'm going, this is great. If, 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 if I was one of my teenage girls, I'd be videoing it out on my phone if we had that technology today. It's, it's in my mind, though. But he's right. And semi-Pelagianism says you're not dead, but you're sick. And what you need is you need God's grace, but then it's the appeal to your will. Now, this is 20th century evangel- uh, evangelicalism. The Billy Graham Association, who I don't totally disdain, but the, their, their magazine, what was the title of their magazine? Decision Magazine. Now, here you have the Lord Jesus saying, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And, and, and yet we have our whole, of course, many of you are victims of the altar call. I myself actually answered an altar call when I was 16. Apparently it didn't work. And, I, and I, again, I don't disdain the motive, but it's so anti-Christian. You know, if you, if you randomly pulled people out of church history and showed them 20th century evangelicalism, they'd go, wow, this is weird. Well, it's semi-Pelagianism. The belief that what we've got to, God will help. He'll give that help and grace, but we've got to persuade the will. And so just as I am gets played over and over and over. And, 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 and the more, or if you're a youth, we're going to deprive you of sleep and food until Friday. 
Then comes, and it's well-meaning Christian people believing that the they have within themselves the ability to exercise the will, and the truth is that they do not. They're not sick. They're dead. By the way, this is going to have the most dramatic effect on how we raise our children, on how we minister in the church, what we do at a youth group. Our youth are having fun, but we're not trying to coerce the will. What does Paul say in 2 Corinthians 4, 2? We have renounced secret and underhanded ways. We no longer use manipulation. We present the word of truth to the consciences of men. And you're going, oh, Rick, you're, you, you, it's like your life's work is preaching God's word to people who do not have the ability to believe. Well, that's in the next chapter of the confession of the effectual call. God supernaturally uses the word to bring them to life. So the Reformed faith says man is wholly unable to will the spiritual good, relying, therefore we rely entirely on sovereign grace to convey life and to change the will. And the Bible promises this. Ezekiel 36, I will take away your heart of stone. I will give you a heart of flesh. One of my favorites is Acts 6, uh, 16, 14, the conversion of Lydia. The Lord opened her heart. It's a sovereign work of God to change the heart is the only way man in his fallen state can be saved. Paul says in 1 Corinthians Thessalonians 1, 5, that it was, it was by, by the Spirit of God that you were converted. Now, I want to point out, though, that this spiritual inability is not externally constrained. There's nothing keeping, and if you were an adult convert, you remember this, there's nothing keeping you from believing. You can believe. You have the ability to believe. The the opportunity is there. The problem is you do not because you will not. The problem is not your your will. The the, the problem is the heart that guides the will. Uh, Just just tonight, really, you need to pray for me. A terrible thing happened to me. I was offered mayonnaise at the food line. And where's Ron? Ron, uh, man. And I I almost, uh, Ron, brother, it's so wicked to offer mayonnaise to people. Why? I hate mayonnaise. Now, are there probably some of you, are you one of them, Ron, you like mayonnaise? I mean, what is that? Is it like rotten eggs? It's like, you know, my, my girls have gotten into Duke's mayonnaise, which I know is all the thing. Yeah, I know, you know. And they're like, Dad, would you pass a Duke's mayonnaise? No. I don't want my hands to be on the outside of a jar. Now, you're going, now, why is he so freaked out about mayonnaise? I do not know. I hate it. I never chose to hate it, but I do hate it. Do I have the ability to spread mayonnaise, the very thought of which I to want to vomit, on my burger? Is there any constraint from me doing so? No, I, I am able. Why will I not do it? It's because my nature hates it. Now, I believe that's my nature in a state of grace. But I could be wrong. I could be wrong. I mean, you feel free to disagree with me. I, I think that's, that's the Holy Spirit in my life. But I mean, the, uh, maybe I'm wrong. Nothing is keeping the unbeliever from believing in Jesus except for a heart that hates him. And I thought Jeremiah was very interesting last week, the whole idea of uh, uh, you know, verse 12 in chapter 18. You may have forgotten already. I have not. Where he, they said, we will not follow his ways. We will walk in the folly of our hearts. There's the American today. 
It's always the, the, the fallen person. We, we, we are de- autonomy. That kind of free will we want, where I am God. I am my own God. I make my own rules. I determine the purpose of my own life. That's the problem. And that person has the, has the, there's no external constraint. They are able, except for they are not able not to be the idolatrous sinner that they are. Is that helpful? I hope that's helpful. And again, I, our view of this is going to dramatically affect our view of, of evangelism. In short, we believe that it takes a miracle. You know, if, if here's, here's the bad news. The unregenerate person is dead in sin. Here's the good news. Christ raises the dead. But we rely on supernatural means. Uh, 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 somebody mentioned, uh, first, uh, Jagar did, 1 Corinthians uh, uh, one seventeen. Uh, the gospel is folly to the world. But to us who are saved, it's the power of God. God supernaturally blesses the foolishness of preaching. Why? Because he has ordained that by his word, the dead will come to life. And of course, my favorite example is Ezekiel 37. My children accuse me of using this illustration more than I actually do. I think I should use it more than I do. Uh, you know, my, 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 there's a line they always make fun of me for saying, you think your church is dead, his was decomposed. The valley of dry bones, it's scattered bones around. What do you do if this is true? And, there, and this, you're, 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 you're witnessing maybe the, the, your friends in the workplace, your unconverted family, maybe your church and you're the preacher. What do you do when there is no life? You prophesy, son of man, he says. He preaches the word, and while he preached, a wind was seen. It's the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, by the word of God, brings life from the dead. There's our philosophy of ministry in a nutshell. It flows out of this. Okay, I'm running out of time. It's important things to say about man in the state of grace, the regenerate Christian. Again, one of the biggest things for us to recover today is the radical difference it makes to be born again. I think the previous generation, for many Christians, their actual experience may have leaned towards legalism. Because if that's true, certainly in the PCA and in the reform world today, we have gone the other way and we are, we're leaning antinomian. And people say, oh, look, I'm just a sinner. No, you're never just a sinner as a Christian. Because now when God converts a sinner and translates him into the state of grace, he frees his nature from natural bondage under sin and by his grace alone enables him freely to will and to do that which is spiritually good. Now you are enabled. You were able. You became not able. You now are enabled to do good. So, yet so, by reason of his willing remaining corruption, he does not do so perfectly or only will that which is good, but also that which is evil. Let's look at that briefly. Well, conversion is a deliverance from the power and dominion of sin. Isn't that the most wonderful thing? I love the line in Colossians 1, 13 and 14. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. And so I, I was part of a whole, a whole conglomerate before I was converted. And it had power over me. And, and I, it's like me praying for Jagar's uh, visa. But it's like getting a passport from God. And you're freed from the realm of darkness. And, and again, I think if you, you, many of you remember this in your life. I was completely controlled by lies. And now I'm being delivered by truth. 
That's why we cannot compromise truth in our generation because we've been delivered from lies to truth. But it also involves a regeneration of my nature. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature, new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. There's a radical statement from the Apostle Paul, and many of us know that. We are, we are new. It is the new creation. I love 1 Corinthians 6, 11. In the previous verses, starting in verse 9, he lists all kinds of sins, but the, but the ungodly will not inherit the kingdom of God. Actually, he talks about fornication and homosexuality there. Talks about the greedy, the idolater. He says they will not enter the kingdom of God. And then he says, and such were some of you, but you have been washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. One thing this means is that, and this is partly what we're fighting in the PCA, we should never identify positively with sin. What we have today is a particular controversy, and the reason for this is this foolish cultural accommodation. We believe if the, if the culture pats us on the head and calls us good little progressives, then, then we'll be able to witness the gospel. That's, what that's what's going on. And so I'm a gay PCA pastor, a guy says. My, and in fact, they said to me, you probably don't have a problem with saying I'm an, I'm an alcoholic Christian. I say, actually, I do. You go, well, that's AA. Well, AA, while it does some good, is not Christian. I don't mind you saying, look, I'm a Christian who struggles with X, Y, Z, A, B, C, or D. Maybe it is same-sex attraction. Maybe it is alcoholism. But you are no longer what you were. And we are not to identify there are no racist Christians. There are no alcoholic Christians. There are no homosexual Christians. You just give me other words to throw in there. Now you go, well, hold it. There's Christians who are struggling with these things. Yes, but they are struggling with them. They are rejecting them. They are not positively identifying with them. Why? Because the regeneration involves a change of kingdom and a change of nature. We are regenerated. You you, this conversion, therefore, is by grace alone. John 3, 3, you must be born again. A better translation would be, you must be born from above. There must be, Jesus is saying, a supernatural work of God through the Holy Spirit. He mentions the Holy Spirit in that passage, by which you are, it, it's such a radical change, it's like being born again from above. You received a new life from God, a new nature, a new heart, a new mind, uh, and you've been delivered from, uh, from the dominion of sin. Paul in Ephesians 2, the same passage where he said you were dead in transgressions, he then compares our new birth to a spiritual resurrection. You've been raised together with Christ. That's what the new birth means. Now, the bad news is that you retain the old sinful habits, you have sinful inclinations, you still have sinful desires and temptations, and yet, and you continue, you can continue to sin. And so the confession very wisely, very biblically points out that in this life, we, we have a new man and then we're still dragging around the old man. It's like this corpse is attached to you. And that's why you have so much language from the Apostle Paul, for instance, you know, put off the old man, put on the new. And our daily life, we're to be, we're to be pursuing the, the grace of the Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Holy Spirit, the, the blessings of God, the change in our lives. Paul says we're to be mortifying, put to death the sin that is in your members. So it's not just behavior. It's the old, it's, it's, and, and don't you find as a Christian, it's all the little stuff. The need to go first in line, the need to be noticed at the party, 
the need to, uh, you know, that your story's better than their story. You're, and and you, you, you see this thing going on, and you're like going, wow, I really am a sinner. I mean, you, and, and you are. This is why you have a spouse and friends and family members to go, you know, do you always have to have the best story? Wow. Did you, you one-up them? or or you, I mean, I, I always say to myself, I enter a conversation. In fact, I was at meetings this week, and my dear wife said to me, I, I said to her, you know, in a large group like that, I, I'm praying that my dominant traits would be under control. There, there's good parts of them and there's bad parts of them. And she said, honey, I'll be praying for you that in every meeting you will actively think to yourself, what can I learn about this person before they learn something about me? Now, what is that me doing and with the help of my wife? Restraining the old man, which is still in me. And, and, but there's growth, there's change. And I've, you've heard me say it many times. You and I should have, that's me having a project. You know, I, I was raised in the, in the Armor Corps. Uh, the, it could have been the motto of my upbringing to shoot first. You know, 98% of tank engagements, the side that shoots first wins the battle. And, and to, so, you know, reactiveness was a virtue of my whole upbringing. But I've been born again. I don't, I don't have to continue that. And I've had, for many years, and I have testimony from my wife, there's been a lot of sanctification. Why? Because I've wanted to change. Be a little less reactive, a little slow, more listen more. Uh, and, and I'm just giving you small examples. Some of them are from my own experience, but you have them in your hearts, which says you still are a sinner. But here's what I want to say to you. Not only should you not sin, you need not sin. Because now you are able not to sin. Isn't that a great thing? You're in a marriage, which is such a little laboratory of this. And and you're and you know, and you're going, wouldn't it be great? If you go to counseling, they'll go, why, wouldn't it improve things if you stopped making those snarky comments? It would. Well, how about doing them, you know? Or wouldn't it be great if you, if you acted a little less selfishly? selfishly? It would. Well, my, my response is, do it. There's, we, we have the ability as Christians to change and to, and to, and to turn from sin. Now, in this life, we're never going to be perfect. You know, I, I, this is where Romans 7 is so interesting. Because I mentioned earlier, the mystery of the garden is how a righteous person sinned. But the same mystery takes place in a converted person. In Romans 7 is where Paul's talking about his struggle with sin. Uh, people come to me and say, Pastor, I don't think I'm a Christian because I'm just so nasty. I'm so rotten. I've got, I'm just so sick of my sin. And then they basically replay their own version of Romans 7, where Paul literally says, I do not understand myself. The good that I want, I do not do. The evil that I don't, I do. Who shall deliver Cursed am I. Who shall deliver me from this body of death? Blessed be the Lord Jesus Christ. And I always want to say, you know, it's only the Christian who talks that way. I've been a minister a long time. I've never yet had an unconverted person say, I am so sick of sin. I am sick of my sin patterns. And, I, you know, I'm really trying not to do them, and I just did it. That's, that's the struggle of the Christian life. But there is grace. We have the and there should be growth. There should be growth. Wouldn't it be terrible if this was the plateau we're on? You know, you get converted. And I, I see the clock, too, so I'll be quick. You, you, you get converted, and, and usually there's kind of like the antisocial sins go away quickly because you couldn't exist in the church if they didn't. And then, and, and, you know, two years after your conversion, you look so much better, and you are so much better. But I personally don't want to spend the rest of my life on that level. I, I look back on the man I was 10 years from that, years ago, and I kind of go, wow, it's kind of brutal. 
I look forward 10 years from now to look back on the man I am now and going, well, that's a little embarrassing. This growth, not only should you not sin, you need not sin, you are able not to sin. You are passe non peccare. It'd be a good t-shirt for our youth group. Passe non peccare. You are able not to sin, but not perfectly in this life. Perfection's in the state of glory. Oh, how we look forward to it. Our entry into glory, we're told, involves a final sanctification by which we no longer have sinful desires at all. And the will then will be free. Then we will have true free will again because we will only will that which is right and just and true and glorifying to our Father. I love the statement of Hebrews 21 talking about heaven. You've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. In the heavenly Zion, those, those justified people, you and I are justified through faith. We are the righteous, but we are not yet perfect. We will be perfect then. And of course, you know, 1 John 3, 2, we, when he appears, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. And that glorification is Christ's work completed. Jude 24 says, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, that's now, and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. That's then. It is Jesus who will bring you into perfection, how we look forward to it. That is when we have our our final freedom, how we long for the eternal glory. Well, let me wrap it up and let's pray. Father, thank you for this time to reflect on these things. I pray that this would be edifying to our folks and having clear truth categories is such a blessing, Lord. Use these biblical teachings. And Father, cause us to say, my state right now is the state of grace. I should be growing. I should be turning away from sin. We pray for that in Jesus' name, amen.